The story you are about to hear was written by Scottish author Andrew Murray Scott. In Twilight Incident, The Sins of Edward Beaton's Working Life in Kampala, Uganda in the 1960s come back to haunt him with a vengeance in a men's outfitter's 1980s Dundee. Twilight Incident by Andrew Murray Scott Edward Beaton sat in the gloom of the Val d'Or Café at a corner table. He had a view across a deserted square where pigeons strutted like Mussolini. Two cups of coffee after lunch. The staff kept the table for him, although the café was rarely busy. Nice to see you again, Mr Beaton. He glanced upwards. Hello, he said, scrutinising a person he barely recognised. And tell me, is your wife getting any better? Yes, yes, well, must be getting. Goodbye. The world was receding from Edward Beaton, rushing from him with brief greetings, unfinished remarks, a word here and there. The younger generations were so impatient. He glanced again at his watch. Plenty of time. A cartoonist would have enjoyed the full lips, heavily bagged eyes, the head a perfect oval and absolutely bald. Beaton looked in some abstract way, like a fish, glaring neutrally at everyone and everything with the same inscrutable cold watchfulness. He was a man behind glass, an illusion partly suggested by the size of his spectacles. The Val d'Or was his private aquarium. In the streaks of light wreathed with his cigarette smoke, millions of dust motes frantically danced. He was reminded of the dry, dusty heat of long ago, in Kampala, clunking electric fans in the offices in Victoria Street, himself thirty years younger, idling with a cigarette, damp patches at his neck and temples, the irritant whine of a light aircraft's propellers. A late-season fly buzzed erratically inside the cafe window. Beaton blinked at it for a moment. Then he reached out to the brown paper package on the table beside his hat, and unscrewed the cap of the half-bottle inside. The cigarette slumped into a line of ash on the side plate as he secretly drizzled whiskey into his coffee. He deserved a stiff drink after that fiasco with the credit slips. Sooner or later his mistakes would come to light. The whiskey calmed his nerves, took the edge off his panic, but he was no longer quite up to it. He dare not lose this job. Even although he was well past the official retirement age, some salesmen he knew were working well into their seventies. As long as you kept your standards up, clean collars, shoes polished, trousers neatly pressed, a mint imperial to mask the sweet smell of lunch, he glanced again at his watch. Twenty minutes yet. Another sip, a good bloody mouthful, the pattern of so many of his long afternoons back then, on the veranda staring into the blanched heat haze of the suburbs. Any thoughts of work were suicidal, a hundred and twenty in the shade. The narrow veins of the electric fan spun mesmerizingly, casting a moving shadow on the blinds. A group of cheerful boys in dotes towing a cart of watermelons round the residences. The hiss of water sprinklers. Lawns retained a semblance of green within sprinkling distance. Beyond was scorched, brown scrub wilderness. The bungalow was probably demolished. The thought intruded into his reverie. 
It was true. All gone. Everything changed. These hills are not Highland Hills, are not my land's hills. Now why should that bloody song remind him so forcefully? The years of exile, his present and his past, seeming to elide like one long afternoon memory. And as he thought about her, his memories seemed to grow fonder. He had often thought of writing to her, of asking Ellen to send her his regards, or should that be love, but it seemed better to keep her as a memory, out there in East Africa where she could not reproach him, at a safe distance. At sunset he would return and see her, unapproachable under the nets, reclining on that secure inside herself and critical, always. She had the toughness that came from being born out there. Her mother and her father were Scots, both long in the colonial service. Una had inherited their repressed sense of duty, of endurance against hardships real and imagined. Beaton had keenly followed more recent political developments. A lot of foreigners had come home since the Troubles, yet he was convinced Una stayed on, making do, eking out her days in the dusty heat. Some people never change, and Una was one of them. Ellen kept in touch with her, of course, or he supposed so, not that he knew for sure. He left money on the side plate and stood up, picked up his hat and pressed out the dinge. Not many men these days wore hats, kept up the proprieties, and with his raincoat folded over his arm, he strolled into the dusty sunshine and headed across the high street. At Gillespie's Men's Outfitters, Gordon Swanson, the young upstart, was in the window to make a pretense of brushing the display. Beaton knew he was there to leer at passing females, with his terline pink shirts and rubber-soled slip-ons. Swanson had once leaped out of the display at him, grinning inanely. You have a visitor! But it had not been his landlady, Mrs. Kilgour, to whom he owed considerable lent her ears. Una had spoken first. She had sniffed at him. Why, you've certainly come down in the world, Edward. Shop assistant. And I suppose you're still drinking? Always said it would ruin you, and it has. I'm sales manager, he had said weakly. Swanson had undoubtedly been sniggering behind his hand. Could have done a great deal better. You have squandered yourself through alcohol, and in all these years not one letter. You're a cold man, no heart. I have missed you, he managed, unconvincing even to himself. It's good to see you, Una. I simply don't believe you, Edward. If you had written at least once, then I might believe you. Beaton remembered that incident every time he entered the shop, even though Swanson had long since been got rid of. The new assistant was awkward but well-mannered. Una, he supposed, had returned to Campana. Nice lunch, Mr. Beaton? Tolerably so, Alison. You'd better about yourself. Take your time. Beaton busied himself in the minor tasks of the afternoon. Customers at Gillespie's were few enough to cause concern at head office, but those who entered were fussed over and made much of, measured and flattered. But Friday afternoon was the slowest, the quietest of the week. Fewer men took the time to dress smartly with style. Casual clothes were everywhere, tracksuits, sloppy joes, even what were called shell suits, and with them, casual attitudes, slackness, disrespect, his generation were on the wane, all the old ways gone. Now it was change for the sake of it. They worked methodically along a rack of pure new wool suits, leaving neatly 
brushing the odd speck of dust off the shoulders. There was dust everywhere, even, he noticed for the first time, on the cash register and along the frame of Her Majesty the Queen in full regalia. If he jumped under a train, the only person who would grieve would be Ellen. Shoppers drifted past the window display, filtering the light into his inner sanctum as the street lights came on. Soon be Christmas! He saw Alison's eager, rather bovine face emerge from the street. For the next few hours, Beaton made frequent trips into the storeroom, reaching into the pocket of his raincoat, and each time he re-entered, he was sucking a peppermint. Towards the close of business, when Alison was at the bank, he tried to execute a little jig to which a loud fart was the climax but nearly fell over. He resolved to make a new start. Quit the drink. Pay Mrs. Kilgour on time. Increase sales. Write to Ellen and Una too, yes. He noticed how neatly the suits hung on their wooden racks, how clean and tidy the shop was. He rearranged the season's special offer, a new winter coat, pinning it tighter around the dummy on its dais, then caught sight of the clock. My goodness, where has the afternoon gone? You'd better be off to meet that young man of yours. I'll stay to write up the figures. Off you go now. He snipped the door and stood for a second or two watching the shadows lengthen in Reform Street. The stock register lay opened on the counter. His concentration failed him. He sucked the end of the pencil. For the third time that day, he was thinking about Una and the bungalow in Kampala. He knew full well she hadn't returned there. He knew the bungalow was gone. Letters addressed to him had sporadically arrived, postmarked Edinburgh, and lay unopened in the sock drawer of his wardrobe. He presumed she was living with Ellen. He swallowed a large mouthful from the half-bottle and looked at the stock-till receipts. He could make no sense of them. A rap on the glass startled him. Ordinarily, Beaton would have retorted, We're closed! But he saw that it was a young woman, smartly dressed, a beautiful young female, such as he rarely conversed with these days. Feelings of gallantry surfaced. He adjusted his spectacles. I'm afraid we are closed for business, miss, he said behind the door. The woman looked disappointed. Oh, and I have come all this way, and I have to catch my train in an hour. Beaton reached up to the snib. It is past closing time, he said. We do close at six on a Friday, but if it is an emergency... Oh, it is, she said, stepping in close beside him. He carefully snipped the door, aware of her perfume, gardenias and scented soap. She was like a vision. Something about her powerfully reminded him of long-ago days in far-off Kampala. Another life, forgotten favours, pleasures in the afternoon. Mr. Edward Beaton, is it? the girl asked doubtfully. But how do you know my name? he inquired, rather startled. You were recommended, she said primly. Best gentleman's outfitters in Dundee. Ah, yes, Beaton said, word of mouth. The best method of advertising. Now, how can I help you, miss? You could call me Hasu if you like. Hasu, what a charming name, Beaton murmured, quite taken with her. A coat, she announced, looking around the shop. For the cold Scottish winters, a coat for my father. Certainly, he said. Now for your father, do you know the size? She vaguely indicated the height with the pink palm of her hand. Actually about the same as you. 
Indeed, Beaton coughed discreetly into his hand. And your father is a professional gentleman. Oh, yes, she said. He was formerly a diplomat. Really? How interesting, Miss Hasu, Beaton beamed. I myself was in, well, it was called then the Colonial Service, of course, until the mid-1960s, and if I'm not mistaken, I served in the very country where you come from. His voice took on a warmer tinge. Uganda is where you come from, is it not, Miss Hasu? I can always tell the features, you know, something about the skin tones. Ah, yes, I was there for nearly twenty years. Enjoyable years, you know. This is interesting, the woman said curtly. I myself live in London. My stepfather was an enemy of General Amin, but we are planning to return now the elections have been held. I have come to Scotland on family business. That's nice, Beaton murmured selecting several coats from the rack and spreading them across the counter. These are our best quality, pure new business coats, he said. She looked at the coats with disdain. I'm afraid I don't want to buy a coat, she announced. The woman who recommended your shop is, I have discovered, actually, a relation of mine. Beaton stood vaguely, smiling in the middle of the floor, holding the coat hangers, his spectacles glinting under fluorescent lighting. I'm afraid I don't understand, he said mildly. How then can I help you? They looked at each other for an instant, and Beaton was startled to recognize savage hatred in the look. His left hand came up to his mouth as he stared uncomprehendingly at her. I met her for the first time today, said the woman sharply, and she remembered my mother only as your cleaning woman. Beaton could not take it in. He clutched the coat hangers. The woman's voice was wavering with strong emotion. My mother was just a simple girl from Masaka. I promised her before she died that I would find you and confront you. Beaton felt a wave of heat sweep across his brow, found himself experiencing difficulty in breathing. He was falling. The police had to break down the door because it was stood from the inside. A half bottle of whiskey sat on the counter, empty amid a tangled mass of coat hangers and a pile of coats. But the till was intact. No signs of robbery. The Queen's portrait was on the floor, and there was glass everywhere. The constable's boot crunched the glass as he stared down at the body. Natural causes, you think? Probably a cardiac, poor old codger. We'd better inform his wife, if he has one, or next of kin. He glanced at the perspex face of his wristwatch. We'll make a note of the time. The woman PC sniffed. Smell that. Perfume. That's odd, given that the door was snibbed. I'd swear there's been a woman in here. Well, maybe, but it's a job for the plainclothes boys, and good luck to them. Twilight Incident was read by Andrew Murray Scott. If you enjoyed this story, you can listen to more of Andrew Murray Scott's story podcasts on Telling You Stories. You could also visit his website, or his author's page on Amazon.com to find out more about his published books. Thank you for listening.